Hello and welcome to another episode of the Global Wire Conversation. Today I'll be talking to Ian Rowe. Mr. Rowe is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation and adoption. Mr. Rowe is also the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based international baccalaureate high schools that will be opening in the Bronx in 2022. He currently serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center and a writer for the 1776 Unites campaign. In our conversation, we're going to talk about upward mobility, the role of family, and an emerging new class of African-American academics that seem to become the main representatives of classical liberal values. I hope you'll enjoy it. So... The first question I would have to you is that you've dedicated a large portion of your life's work to areas of empowerment for disadvantaged members of society. And one of your key focus areas was and still is the role of education, particularly now with the COVID pandemic and during school closures, the role of teachers unions. This topic seems to be even more important. Could you tell us a little bit more about what role you see for education and social mobility, why it is so important, and what tend to be what tends to be overlooked in the contemporary debate about it? Well, Ralph, thank you so much for having me on. And and yes, I, I very much believe in the power of education in my in my own personal life. It was it's what I call the great equalizer. Um, the only thing in some ways more important than education is uh, the first uh, powerful mediating institution, that's the family. Uh, we can talk about that as well. But education is the vehicle through which uh, a kid who may not be born into a certain circumstance that they have all access to resources, it's the quality of school and the ability for a parent to be able to choose a high quality educational experience for their child is fundamental to the American dream. When my parents came to the United States from Jamaica, West Indies, they weren't wealthy. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they had a strong intact marriage. They had a strong belief in uh, family and education. And they enrolled my brother and I in the New York City public school system. And uh, I had the benefit of a fantastic, free, uh, high-quality education from K to 12, kindergarten through 12th grade, with uh, teachers that supported us and, and helped us realize how we could achieve the dreams that we had for ourselves. And fast forward to present day, for the last decade, I've run a network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx with parents who have similar aspirations that my parents had for me. And it's really distressing when you, when we do see what's happening with COVID right now, with schools closing, with remote learning, usually not done in a very effective fashion. We have millions of kids all across the world who are suffering a level of loss that right now it's, it's really almost unimaginable and unmeasurable. Because uh, not only is the learning not happening, we're not even doing any types of assessing uh, that can give us a sense like when things, quote unquote, do get back to normal, we'll even be able to really tell just how far we now need to uh, move forward. So I've been part of several efforts. Uh, even this past summer, we created a, a very innovative remote learning model where we uh, recruited some of the best teachers in the country in the United States. 
14 teachers who were then able to teach uh, almost 12,000 kids through this very innovative one-to-many uh, teaching relationship, which we can talk about. But my hope is that in this time of COVID, there are actually some lessons that we can learn for how we can accelerate learning uh, for kids who are who are you know falling far farther and farther behind. There is an argument being made because you mentioned the family, right? The, the importance of family structure. And one argument very often is that with the decline of families, the role of the government gets bigger and bigger. But as the role of the government is increasing, families become supposedly less important. So there's more family breakdown, making even more government intervention necessary. Do you think there is something to this argument of a vicious cycle? Uh, there is a particular, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, you know, in the United States in the 60s, the non-marital birth rate for all Americans was about uh, somewhere between five to 10 percent, meaning that, uh, you know, 95, 90 to 95 percent of all children were born into marriage. And uh, within the black community in the 60s, uh, several uh, prominent uh elected officials called out that the non-marital birth rate at that time was 24%. And this particular uh, elected official, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, was calling crisis, 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 because the effect of kids growing up in a household without two married stable parents has all sorts of downstream impacts. If you looked at poverty, criminal behavior, dysfunctional behavior, a lot of it was related to the fact that kids were being born into these environments. Fast forward 50, 60 years, the non-marital birth rate within the black community is more than 70%. And for the entire country, it's now hovered at about 40%. And within, for women 24 and under uh, who had children in the year 2018, 71% of all births uh, were outside of marriage. And it, that's almost a guaranteed recipe for poverty, uh, long-term criminal activity. There are always exceptions, but there's no question that that level of impoverishment in early stages then creates the vicious cycle where, well, then we have to have more subsidization to take care of the kids who are being born into poverty which ironically creates perverse incentives around work. And so there's been a lot of uh, studies that indicate that when the government starts essentially replacing the function of fathers, then you get more of this behavior. And it's one of the things I, I write about extensively because the flip side is actually really true. If you study success, there is something called the success sequence. So if you finish your, just a high school degree, uh, you know, finish your education, then take a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if you have children, marriage first, if you take that series of decisions of education, work, marriage, then children, the data shows that 97% of people who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. That is, a, that is an unbelievable set of outcomes. It's not even a public policy, but it's crucial in my view that young people across the country are taught these behaviors, not as a prescription, but as, as a description to say, you're gonna have power to make choices in your own life. 
there are going to be rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. And this is one that will not only create a, a scenario where your own life is better, but your life will be better for your spouse and for ultimately your children. So family structure is, in my view, critical to the ultimate outcomes for kids on top of having the ability to choose a great school once you're within a strong family. It very often seems, and this of course runs the risk of being a very provocative statement, that the very groups that the government is intending to help, so which is most definitely uh, driven by good intentions, could down the road be the biggest victims in socioeconomic terms of these well-intended policies. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the research literature on well-intended policies, particularly around welfare, that have a whole host of unintended consequences uh, is, is, is very rich and at this point undeniable, which is why in the United States right now, there is a bit of a fear that many of the policies that the new administration are proposing seem to be gravitating back to this idea of let's just make direct cash payments to uh, poor individuals with no strings attached. So there's there's childcare allowances. There are a number of uh, big policy uh, interventions that are being proposed all the way from children uh, to get to literally just being paid money to uh, racial reparations where the government would just start literally sending checks for $200,000 to black descendants of slaves as somehow to make up for the discrimination that has occurred or occurred in, in the past. All of these interventions, first of all, they're massively expensive. I mean, they, these are hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of interventions. The data has shown you do these things, you create a whole new generation of people who are not motivated to work, likely will not be motivated to marry, have strong families. It's a recipe for disaster. Do you think there is, it's, it's almost a, a kind of a psychological effect. If, if you take the black community in the United States and, and you have this, this kind of this, cult, this cultural atmosphere where an entire community is told almost endlessly that they have no chance and that the system is conspiring against them and no matter how hard they try, they will never get, uh, they will never get uh, ahead. I mean, at some point, it would make understand. It would be understandable if some members of that of that community would say, "Then why should I try in the first place?" Isn't that almost a form of psychological child abuse? If you can, if you start education with saying, "There is education, we provide you with education," but just so you know, the system is built in a way that even if you get a medical degree from Harvard, you will have no chance. I mean, at some point, somebody is going to say, "Then, then why should I put in all the work to get the medical degree in the first place?" Absolutely. It's, it's what I call replacing physical enslavement with mental enslavement, which is even more insidious because essentially when mental enslavement occurs, then you've actually created an environment in which individuals are self-constraining themselves. They don't have an aspiration because the belief is that the hurdles of race or gender or class are so high that they don't have the ability to surmount them. And that is the most cruel kind of racism. It's the most cruel form of discrimination. And I would say to you, Ralph, right now, this is not only a problem within the black community, 
there's a lot of this kind of oppressor oppressed framework that's being applied whether, whether or not it relates to, relates to class or gender particularly to race so there are white kids in low-income areas of the country in Appalachia who also are starting to feel helpless and so my hope is that we if we as a nation can recognize that there's a lot of pain and suffering across race and we can create a multi-racial coalition of people black white asian lots of folks in this country who recognize they're not powerless that there are tools such as strong families faith hard work entrepreneurship education these are institutions and foundations of a flourishing life and they're available to everyone and it's not and by saying these things it doesn't discount that there is are remnants of racism and other forms of discrimination and by the way there there's challenges in life there's no human being that just passes through life without facing some kind of struggle and so these are the foundations these are the institutions that are within your grasp that's the message that's why i run schools it's an it's an inherently optimistic endeavor and that's why I challenge people who are seem to be determined to convince kids that you're oppressed and you don't have a shot. This sometimes seems like the late revenge of, of Karl Marx. We live in the most prosperous and most educated society, but this idea that the structure determines everything and then the individual has no, no agency, that seems to be more and more prevailing, particularly as you mentioned, not just in the black community, among young people. I think maybe one of the reasons why, why socialism also among young black people is increasing in popularity is because it really pushes also this point that if the, the structure, the, the government, the system is not taking care, is not making the necessary steps, then you as an individual are, are without hope, so to speak. Uh, it, it, it's such a false, it's such a false promise. And it, it, you do have to ask the question, why is it that so many young people and people of all backgrounds are embracing this message. And it does seem that there's something satisfying about it, right? If you are not successful, it's somewhat comforting to say, it's not your fault. You're just helpless. It's the system. It's white supremacy. It's institutional racism. It's structural barriers. And so it's very easy to kind of blame this amorphous blob that's all powerful and then invoke the government as the only way to solve the problem. There's a lot of research, for example, done on what's called the racial wealth gap in the United States. And there's analysis that shows that the average white family has about 10 times the wealth of the average black family. And so if you only look at race as a singular dimension, it's a pretty big gap. And there are people who use that to, to show this is proof of uh, permanent racial discrimination. And quote, several of the advocates say, quote, there is nothing an individual black person can do to solve this problem. There is nothing you can do. Imagine if someone told you that. And then, it, but if you look at the data, you see that all this information flips when you take into account family structure. The average married uh, two-parent black household 
has nearly twice the wealth of the average uh, single white parent household. So what that suggests and that there are factors in your control that can make a difference. And it's that kind of empowering message that I'm determined and I think there is a new class of individuals throughout the United States who are pushing back on this defeatist, hopeless narrative to say we need to reject that and, re and embrace the principles that have allowed people of all races to flourish in this country. I mean, somebody who, who said something similar was in, in 2014, then President Barack Obama, and he mentioned the problem of, of stigmatizing uh, members of the African community, what, and I'm using his words, as acting white. So he uses as an example, uh, when, when a young person tries to get good grades at school or reads a lot or speaks properly, that then this person gets accused of, between quotation marks, acting white and trying to fit in with kind of white stereotypes and, and betraying, so to speak, their own their own community. Do you think it is fair that we're not only encountering a problem of access to education, kind of how to get to school and to good schools, but also a cultural rift that puts a different value on it, right? If we compare, you mentioned also some issues within the white community, but if you look particularly at education, it seems that the Asian American community is doing fairly well, better than all the other communities. So is it not just access to education and what is being taught in schools, but also the cultural value that education has within different communities? Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the Asian community, which often is referred to as the model minority because of their success. And sometimes I think it's an unfair uh, description because even within the Asian community, there are families that are struggling in the same way that in the black community, there are certain families that are flourishing. And in the white community, there are certain families that are not doing well. And so what you start to realize is that there are model behaviors, right? So the number of hours spent studying per night, the, the, the percent of married two-parent households within a community. Like these are the behaviors, the values that are placed around education. How many hours do you spend doing homework per night? How many hours do you spend reading to your child? And what's so dangerous about what's happening in our country right now is that critical race theory, which is a, 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 an ideology that's very perverse and yet is sweeping through the country, ascribes these behaviors that should be attached to any human, they're attaching it to white supremacy. So even a married two-parent household, somehow that's a function of white supremacy. Uh, doing math and showing your work, somehow that's a function of white supremacy. Uh, studying, being punctual, being on time, somehow all of these are functions of white supremacy. And so they're, they're creating this kind of evil association with the very behaviors that these communities need to take advantage of in order to be successful. And I, I think, I think uh, it's kind of a sleeping giant that's being woken right now that's starting to realize that this ideology of critical race theory uh, and anti-racism are actually uh, seeking to hurt the very people that they're claiming to help. 
I did a, a little reading in particular on this issue. So I read Ibrahim X. Kendi and I read some, some pieces by uh, Tina Hissikotz. And occasionally it reminds me of in the Soviet Union, they had this project, for example, to, to take the bourgeois values out of the game of chess, right? Because chess was also perceived of something that the, the bourgeois does. So they tried to create kind of the, the Sovietified version of chess that would be the proletarian's version of the of the game. And this sometimes reminds me a bit where you take where, where kind of innocent things are taken or the things that you mentioned, right? Math, being on time, the two-parent family, and it's infused with 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 this this kind of, of, of racial uh, racial ideas or, or this critical race theory. And I'm wondering where does this come from? I mean what's the what's the what it has become so pervasive? I think there is a Marxist uh, foundation, uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, you know, Pablo Freire, I mean, you know, you, you read this work and it's it's very hard not to see that this is coming from a Marxist communist, uh, communist uh, perspective now being particularly applied to race and then radiates out to include gender um, uh, and, and other immutable characteristics, but all of it is from this frame of oppressor versus oppressed, where the oppressed have no individual agency, no ability to think for themselves or do for themselves or to organize locally around their families, their local communities. And it's, it's the literal opposite of what the United States of America was formed to prove, that you could have a self-governing free society with limited government and individuals who associated within neighborhoods, within families, within schools, within faith communities to be the anchor of human flourishing. And I think there's going to be a great reawakening. Uh, let's put it this way. If there isn't a great reawakening in the United States, then we will cease to be the great country that we have been and a model for hundreds of millions of people across the country and across the world. I mean, I'm wondering, this is a purely hypothetical question, but I'm occasionally wondering what would, for example, somebody like Frederick Douglass or, or Booker T. Washington, kind of, what, what, what would their perspective be uh, at that, that given the time when they were writing, right? The, I think exactly in many ways what you are describing, that, that there is a, an American promise that has not yet been um, inclusive to everyone, but that this circle of inclusiveness is growing. And it's only a matter of time until it will include the black community and others, and then they can fully participate in the, in the American dream. And now it seems almost as if the American dream itself is, if you forgive the expression, under attack, right? Exactly what you mentioned, that this is in itself something that might not even be worth aspiring to. So it's originally, it was a, an exclusive club with limited membership. And now it's kind of an open club, but the people that could be members seem increasingly to lose interest. Yeah, it's such a profound question. What would have Frederick Douglass, if he were in a time machine brought here? First of all, he probably would be shocked at the millions of black Americans who are thriving. You know, often in this dialogue, when we say the black community, it's as if there's no one in the black community that's successful. And yet there are millions of black people who are middle and upper class, millions of black people who are um, in college or, or on their way. Um, obviously we had an African-American president. We now have an African-American uh, vice president. And so this ideology of critical race theory just ignores all of that. 
it just seems to suggest that these oppressive structures, again, are so huge. It's you can't even, and this is why cancel culture is such a problem. Heaven forbid you actually start to identify the people who've been successful in these same structures and you disaggregate what makes them successful. And it looks like it's things like family, education, faith, entrepreneurship. The advocates of critical race theory have to cancel that conversation because it undermines their very ideology that says, no, 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 you're helpless. No, 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 black people are helpless. No, 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 women are helpless. Um, uh, we, 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 we can't, we can't, it's, it's, a, it's like they're a computer that malfunctions. Um, and so that's why they so desperately are trying to, you'll notice there's never debate. The, 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 the people who are biggest advocates, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibrahim Kendi, Nicole Hannah-Jones, they refuse to actually have debates. And there are multiple people who've made public, genuine forums. And I'm, I'm about to launch a series of debates with Harvard Business School, African-American Alumni Association to have Black-led scholars say reparations versus entrepreneurship. Let's have that discussion. What is equity versus equality? If you believe in equality of outcomes, I believe in equality of opportunity. Let's have that debate. And, and again, I think <clears throat> a great reawakening is going to be happening that people are going to see that the emperor has no clothes, that these, these, these theories are actually only focused on power and not at all focused on helping the actual people that they're advocating for. One of the, the, the an important front in exactly this this cultural war and this this hopefully coming great awakening that you describe might be charter schools. And in uh, one of the last editions of Law and Liberty, you wrote a very insightful review of Thomas Sowell's newest book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. Could you tell us a little more about your agreements and disagreements uh, with Sowell's book and what you hope the future of charter schools will be? Yeah, so charter schools uh, in the United States are a form of public schools. They were crafted about 20, 25 years ago for the very simple reason that in the traditional public school system, there were schools that have been failing kids for generations. I mean, in the, in the neighborhoods where I run schools uh, in 2015, of the kids that started ninth grade, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started high mm. school uh, and they dropped out before they uh, completed their degree, or they actually did graduate, but still could not do basic reading nor math without some level of remediation. And that's horrific. Uh, that, that, is, that is not a public school system. Imagine if you were a parent in that neighborhood and you're, you're a poor parent, you, whatever decisions you may have made in your life, the one thing you can hope for is that you wanna create a better future for your child. And, but you're only given these choices. So the charter school movement was created so that innovators could come forward with good ideas to say, no, no, we wanna create a compelling tuition-free alternative in your neighborhood that's a fantastic school. And that's what the charter school movement has become. It's been quite successful. And Thomas Sowell, who's probably one of the leading economists in the world, continues to scratch his head because even though charter schools have been successful, 
there is enormous opposition from teachers unions who are and others who are determined to shut them down. And so he wrote a book called Charter Schools and Their Enemies that basically lays out the case for why charter schools have been so successful and why there is opposition. And oftentimes it's follow the money, you know, uh, charter schools are typically not unionized. Uh, you know, we, we, and I've run charter schools for the last decade. And so I know you have the ability to treat teachers well, pay them well, create a great professional learning environment and have great expectations for kids. And there's a much higher level of accountability because our schools can actually be uh, closed, warned, we have to improve. And we think that that's fundamental uh, for kids. The one danger that is happening within charter schools is that some of the same critical race theory ideology is starting to spread even within charter schools. So for example, there's a network of schools called KIPP, the Knowledge is Power program that for decades has been one of the highest performing schools. And they had a very simple slogan, work hard, be nice. Uh, but last summer they abandoned that slogan because somehow work hard didn't reflect that there's this white supremacist structure and it's unfair to tell kids um, you know, somehow that work hard is, is, uh, is, not, is not a good thing. And can you imagine telling a kid the one thing they have, they might be poor, they might not be from the right neighborhood, whatever, but the one thing they always have is their ability to put in the work. And so the one fear within the charter sector is that's the same kind of ideology which is spreading across K to 12, higher ed, might also be occurring within the charter sector, which again is one of the reasons we, uh, me and several colleagues push back so hard to say that's the exact wrong direction. The last thing we wanna tell kids is that their work does not matter and that somehow there are these structures that will uh, deter their ability to be successful. Let me ask a somewhat provocative question. In your opinion, should schools be entirely ideology-free zones, or is there a room for in, in, inoculating values? I'm particularly referring to, there was a discussion, um, particularly in the last years of the Trump administration, between whether there should be patriotic education or, or if the 1619 project uh, should be used in, in classrooms. Like, is this something you would say, neither of those uh, have a place in the classroom. This is about giving people the ability to stand on their own feet. Or do you think that schools and education do play a role in also kind of creating this sense of a common, maybe not destiny, but a, a common purpose, a common country that goes across class and, and, and racial lines? It's an excellent question. The, the bottom line is that it's impossible to run a values-free school. Even if you choose to say we are non-ideological, we are not gonna talk about values. By their very nature, schools uh, teach values by the behavior of the teachers, by the code of the school. However you operate, that's what you're imparting to kids. So rather than be happenstance about it, be deliberate, be intentional. So I believe there's a very strong role for schools to play in imparting what are the core values? I mean, we're launching a new network of international baccalaureate high schools next year, and it will be grounded in the four cardinal virtues of courage, 
justice, wisdom, and temperance. And that, that's the literally the entire organizing framework of the entire school. So our curriculum will be organized around those values, our uh, teacher training, uh, our parent engagement, uh, all of it will be uh, organized around, well, what does it mean to live with courage? What does it mean to live with justice? And we lay that out. And so it's impossible not to uh, impart values. The key is to be uh, deliberate about it. Now, in terms of patriotic education, you know, the 1619 Project, those are, those are related to your question. But in my view, the reason that things like the 1619 Project should be looked at with some deep skepticism is that this is curricula that does have values behind it. <laughs> they started with the idea that America is an irredeemably racist nation, that the true founding of the country is not 1776, that's 1619. So given that's what we're starting with that ideology, let's now go and cherry pick history so that we can weave a story to say, this is the real telling of the United States of America. And so there is, is the worst kind of, of values in position where you're starting with this perverse notion that America, even the, Rev the American Revolution somehow, that was actually fought to preserve slavery. It, it, it's, it's been widely discredited, thankfully, but yet it's still making its way through schools. So I think when uh, there's pushback against 1619, that's primarily why. On the other side, this idea of a patriotic education, let's not let the pendulum swing all the other way where you essentially cleanse uh, the history of the country without the real uh, atrocities that occurred. And so that's why I'm part of a group, 1776 Unites, where we're developing a curriculum that we believe is grounded in the founding values of the country of faith, family, hard work, entrepreneurship, education, where we tell warts and all, you know, <laughs> that this country has, a, has a, a terrible history of slavery, but it's not the only country that has a terrible history of slavery. And it's one of the only countries in the world that um, there was liberation of the very people that were enslaved. And so it's very important to tell the whole story so that our kids can start to see that we live in a good, if not great country one that has its struggles, but that you as a young person, you have a role to play in the continued evol evolution and revolution uh, of this country to make it better. Maybe as, as a concluding topic, because this I think brings us close also of course to the matter of, of politics. And I'm wondering, you mentioned a couple of names, right? We, we talked a little bit about, we mentioned Glenn Lurie, Thomas Sowell, John McWertha, yourself, Thomas Chatterton Williams. So there is this, this emerging intellectual class that, and many of them originally, including Thomas Sowell, like originally on the left. And, and I think they, I would not say that they moved to the right. I think the true political split that seems to emerge in the United States is more between liberal or classical liberal and illiberal, right? This, 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 this as you mentioned, right? These classical values, versus more modern values, to, to put it this way. 
what do you think can this 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 mixture if you want i mean i think the american enterprise institute kind of is going to play a very central role in this with it, the, the way it is structured and its its mission but where where can then kind of these new thinkers these new classic liberals find a, a political home i think the the is it is it a new party is it the republican party it's, i think this is going to be a very very difficult question in the years to come it's a, it's a very profound question. I, I think for those of us who, who believe we may be part of the group that you're talking about, it's not yet clear where the home is. I mean, the one thing that I think is hopefully uh, we will mimic, I mean, there's been a long history in the United States, in the Black community, of real debate. What is the best pathway forward? So from the era of Booker T. Washington versus W.E.B. Du Bois, to today, you know, Booker T. Washington, he was much more focused on empowerment, education, uh, what I think Glenn Lowry refers to as more of a development narrative. That's why he built more than 5,000 schools throughout the South mm -hmm. during Jim Crow segregation. But W.E.B. Du Bois was much more about civil rights, government policy as, as sort of the primary intervention. And they're not mutually exclusive, but the balance does shift over time. Where in the United States in the 1960s and before we had massive victories in civil rights in in removing the impediments that were enshrined into law when there truly was structural systemic racism that was legal legal barriers based on race to a point today where the barriers are much more culturally imposed than there are legal impediments and I think that the more that there's an airing, that we actually just have honest debates. Let the people decide. Let's have the discussion around what is the best path forward? Is it the government essentially replacing the function of the nuclear family? Is that what we want? Let's have that discussion. Let's not cancel each other. And I, my hope is that this group of people that you're talking about um, continue to have their ideas gain prominence so that there can be an, a, a, a lively discussion about what we actually do have the power to achieve as individuals and as communities. That's what America is all about. As, as my final question, I sometimes wonder, is it possible that in certain cases, so to speak, both sides are right, right? If, if you take the, the matter of reparations, for example, reparations for slavery, I think one can make a very strong and convincing moral case for reparations. But I think there, there is equally an argument, but what would it mean practically, right? Let's, let's assume hypothetically it happens and, and reparations once the, the descendants of, of slaves have been identified and, and this is happening. What would then be the next step? Would, can, would, would, would it be like a checkbox and we say, so slavery is, is checked, so this, this, the topic is, is, is done? Or, or how is this? I think this is very often the, what one can say, yes, there is a justification, but, but how can one then, 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 how can one argue for the, the difficulty or maybe impossibility of pursuing something? that would be morally justified, right? It is this, this, this horrible dilemma between, between morality and practical politics on, on the other side and, and, and being kind of honest in both respects, right? Honestly believing that it, it is a morally justified position, but also 
being kind of forced to honestly make the argument, it might be something that would be really, really difficult to implement, right? I mean, who would pay for it? What about people that arrived in America 10 years ago? What about um, um, what black about Americans, black right? Exactly, that, that, that only arrived shortly or whose, whose parents, you know, like you mentioned before, maybe who came from Jamaica. So it, this would be so difficult. And I think it's sometimes it's, we again tend to, to think in these clearly delineated camps that sometimes make it so difficult to cross over. Well, it's a fair question. And I've started to come to believe uh, that because of the complexities of actually implementing such a massive multiple trillion dollar government uh, transfer program, I've come to believe that the people who are advocating for reparations just want the talking point of, of reparations because they can continue to hammer away at this idea that America is this racist country that owes black Americans without ever having to do the hard work of, of saying, well, how is it that we're really going to have this flourishing? Because uh, if again, even if you could figure it out, this idea, because there, you know, there, Darity, there are uh, economists who put forth ideas. They want to literally start writing checks of about $200,000 per person who can say, who can claim that they're a black descendant of uh, an African slave. Uh, so I wouldn't get a check, but other black, you know, something, I think the numbers are around 20, somewhere between 20 to 30 million black people would just start getting money <laughs> from the government. Who would decide who would pay? I mean, these are negligible questions. And what about Native Americans? What about what about Irish Americans who've come to this country and faced all sorts of discrimination? So it, it, it's a non-starter, but there's power in the narrative. And I think the people like ta Coates and others, they might have a pipe dream that it could be passed, but it's much more powerful to have the talking point because they can continue to hang over the United States and say, you owe us, you owe us. It's a constant wellspring of power. So they never even actually have to get actual reparations because the power of the narrative is as valuable to these propagators because they don't, at the end of the day, they don't really care in my view about the actual people that they're claiming for. It's their own power that they can hang on to and force this country to submit to the guilt that these purveyors continue to push. And by the way, they're making a lot of money. They are, <laughs> they are um, the, the Hanahasi Codes, Nicole Hannah-Jones, they are doing quite well in terms of their ability to generate revenue. In some ways, it's the worst kind of racism in that it's black racists who are capitalizing on the plight of their own people. And that is insidious and it, it ignores the millions of black Americans and people of all races that are demonstrating we can be quite successful in this country. As, as a truly a closing question, but point what you just pointed out, and I, I, it might sound blasphemous, but I don't mean it in a blasphemous way, not at all. But isn't that almost a religious attitude? And you run into this situation, if, if you make racism slash anti-racism kind of the core of your religion, you or a religious like, let me call it a religious like sentiment. I mean, you can never really have the true intention to, to, to get rid of the problem because that's like, 
having a religion whose whose goal would be to to get rid of God, right? So it's it's if, if you make a particular problem so much the center of your your ideological philosophical world, that the, 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 the idea that that you would solve the problem and it would go away is probably is for some at least that you just described probably worse than having the problem or perpetuating the problem in the first place. Oh, they don't want to, they don't want the problem as they've defined it to ever go away. Even in many of the critical race theory, anti-racist trainings that are happening across the country, where can you imagine all of the white people are moved into one room, they're segregated with whites only signs on the doors, and then all of the quote unquote BIPOC people go into other rooms. Heaven forbid you're of mixed race, you know, where do you go? But in, in the white training, Basically, you're, you're made to confess your oppressive tendency that you have this bias, you the implicitly biased or you're explicitly biased. But the key message is you're always going to be racist. So even after you go through this training and, of course, you're paying all this money, you're still a racist. You've continue, you have to continue to, quote, do the work. It's a never-ending wellspring of money, power, and zero interest in the actual outcomes of the people that they're claiming to support. And that's why I think you're seeing a growth in people like me and others who are saying, that's not the recipe for success for anyone of every race. We have to get back to core elements of humanity, family, faith, hard work, entrepreneurship, education, whether we like it or not, that's the stuff of life for people of all races. This is, and I promise this is my last question, but this is bugging me for so long. So I really want to hear you. you that's, that, but it's a very short one because you mentioned the, the, the term BIPOC, right? Black, Indigenous, and, and people of color. So insulting. That's what I wanted to ask. Isn't this you? This is again you. So you, at least at least between quotation marks, whites are whites. But now you take the very particular black experience, and of course also the very particular indigenous people's experience, and you just throw them in this in this huge pot. And 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 is this not exactly doing what the claim of, for example, critical race theory is that you are? That you are dissolving these particular experiences, that you are dissolving what what that community kind of the historical inheritance of that community. If you kind of say, oh, it doesn't matter, we have them in this one pot. That kind of as long as it defines them as as non-white. As you, I mean, that that seems to be at best disrespectful. Uh, I think it's it's worse than that towards the the experience of those who are who are member of of these different groups that are thrown together. Well, it used to be called racist to take a group of people and then ascribe certain characteristics to them solely based on their race. And in this case, they're just lumping people of different races together as if they're all the same or the people even within the individual groupings are the same. It's the most racist reductionist act. It, and again, the people who are doing this, it's about power because if they can mobilize BIPOC people against the white supremacists, then it's power and it's forever a source of guilt that we can keep telling these white people they're supremacist, 
They have privilege and you owe us. So we've got to have equity. That means we've got to have equal outcomes. We've got to have reparations. We've got to, and the government, the government, the government. There's never any agency. There's never any, well, what about the individuals? And, and by the way, what about the millions of quote unquote BIPOC people that have been wildly successful? One thing that's very interesting that's happening in the United States is that Asian Americans, because of their success, are now being taken out of the BIPOC group. And now they're being lumped in with whites because, because their success conflicts with the general narrative. And so you see the deep hypocrisy of the critical race theory, because once the narrative is, is, uh, doesn't fit anymore, they, they trick, uh, quickly try to scramble to reshuffle the deck so that we can put the proper oppressors together with the oppressed. All right, on that note, Mr. Yunro, thank you so much for your time. I hope we can do this again in the future. Well, thank you so much for this conversation.